America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Oliker, speaking to you from Brussels. This episode was produced with the support of Stiftung Mercator, to whom we are very grateful. Today, I'm really excited to welcome you back to a relaunched, revamped War and Peace. Specifically, I am absolutely delighted to introduce and welcome my new co-host, Elissa Jobson. Elissa is Crisis Group's Chief of Advocacy, and from this episode forward, she and I will be spearheading these conversations. You may have already heard her on our sister podcast, The Horn. So welcome to War and Peace. Alyssa, I am so thrilled you agreed to sign on. Thanks, Alia. The pleasure is really all mine. And I've got big shoes to fill uh, with Hughes, but I'll do my best. But really looking forward to having some fun with you on the podcast and learning about lots of new subjects, going into depth on on areas that I already know about and meeting some really interesting guests along the way. I'm very excited about this as well. I'm really pleased with what we've done with War and Peace up until now, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun to work on this going forward with you. So we're going to get started with an episode that is actually just the two of us talking, talking about something that's very much on our minds, the war that continues to rage in Ukraine now well over a month after Russia began its large-scale invasion. And the Ukrainians surprised us all by putting up even more of a fight than we expected. And the Russians surprised us all by proving a lot less capable than many of us had expected. But there's been a lot of ink spilled and a lot of conversations on these topics, and I think they'll be keeping us busy for a long time to come. What Alyssa and I thought we would delve into today is less the specifics of the war, but more how it looks uh, from a distance, a conversation I think we're not having as much. So how the war in Ukraine is perceived around the world and with what repercussions? The war's shockwaves have reverberated around the globe, that's for sure. And it's I think we've seen some unexpected outcomes and it's impacting everything from commodity prices to, to the negotiations to finalise the Iran nuclear deal and also the US's stance towards Venezuela. We're going to take a look at some of these far-reaching consequences and also discuss how the war has been viewed from around the world. Thankfully, we've been exchanging with some of our colleagues around the globe, which has given us some really interesting viewpoints. So we're going to be stepping beyond Western media coverage to discuss global perceptions of Russia's invasion, ranging from outrage to sympathy. I mean, right as the escalated conflict was beginning, we had this tremendous UN General Assembly vote, just this outpouring of, it felt like really unanimity in condemning Russia and in supporting Ukraine. And, you know, one of the places where this uh, these sorts of things really do play out is at the United Nations. Watching this since, Alyssa, I mean, how are you feeling about the dynamics? Do you think it's going to hold? I mean, so far, the humanitarian resolution also had this very, very high level of support. It seems to be holding in New York City, the global outrage. I think there was some expectation that the second 
General Assembly resolution on humanitarian issues wouldn't get the same support that the first resolution that condemned the Russian invasion did. But surprisingly, as you said, I mean, I think it was 141 votes for the first resolution and 140 for the second. But You know, you said there's general consensus, but there's a whole lot of countries who abstained in this vote. And surprisingly, I think, at least surprisingly from viewed from where we are in Brussels. In particular, I think there's been some questions about Africa's position. I think there would have been an expectation, especially given sort of anti-imperial tendencies of many African states, given their experience under European colonialism. An attack on a sovereign state might have been condemned roundly. But there was a number of different responses from the African nations in particular. We saw some like Kenya and Ghana who did really take a principled stance and said that territorial integrity is essential. Others, though, sat on the fence, notably South Africa and also Senegal in West Africa. And I think there was some surprise on this. Senegal has traditionally in the past taken an unaligned stance, has been very neutral in conflicts which are seen as involving major powers. And one thing I think to say here is that from an African perspective and I think from other places in the world, the conflict is seen slightly different. It's not Ukraine versus Russia. It's NATO, Western-backed Ukraine versus Russia. And I think this has affected how countries have responded to this, and especially countries in Southern Africa, and also India to a certain extent, where the Soviet Union, as it was, really supported liberation struggles in these regions. It's an interesting dynamic, right? Because on the one hand, you've got this narrative, indeed, of a colonial power trying to reestablish control of a former colony that broke free 30 years ago and is trying to maintain its freedom. And on the other hand, what you've got in some of these countries is nostalgia for Russia's predecessor state and Ukraine's predecessor state, for that matter, the Soviet Union, and its support for liberation movements. It's a weird thing to square, right, that they have transferred their gratitude, as it were, to the Soviet Union for its support of liberation movements. And that enables them to forgive, excuse, look the other way when that comes to Russian colonialism. Is that how you read it? Or I think there's two things at work. Yes, there is this Russia supported us, we should support Russia to a certain extent. But also I think something else that plays into this is the Western hypocrisy. In Africa in particular, the invasion of Libya and the overthrowing of Colonel Gaddafi is is seen as a almost equivalent, a parallel to what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. And I think the concern is the West responds very differently to crises that break out in Africa and elsewhere around the globe than it has done to this crisis in Europe. And I think that's played into it as well. This sense that the West isn't playing fair, it's made its own mistakes and doesn't want to be held accountable for them. I mean, it's a stark contrast, right? Because if you look at these things historically, the last violation of sovereignty of this sort, of this size, was probably the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. And when I think back to that, there were certainly anti-war protests. There were people in the United States and the West who were opposed to that war. But there also wasn't this huge approbation of the United States. And soon enough, people sort of seemed to have gotten over it. And then also just this question of the human suffering, which is 
it's tremendous in Ukraine, but there's tremendous human suffering in Afghanistan, in Yemen, in Ethiopia. It's actually kind of shocking for me as somebody who has worked around the world that people do seem genuinely more horrified when it happens to white people. And there's something really wrong with that. I mean, absolutely. And we've all heard the stories about how the African and Indian students were treated as they tried to leave Ukraine and compared to the reception that potentially European-looking white Ukrainians, the reception that they got in Poland and Hungary. And it really sort of, it sticks in the craw, I think, of the countries whose citizens treated really badly in Europe in particular. The spectre of Syrian refugees crossing the Mediterranean, I mean, that was shocking, but it hasn't seemed to have had the same response on the citizens of Europe. And similarly, you know, when the number of Africans that have died crossing the Mediterranean from Libya, you know, these things do not get the same response here. And it's it's difficult to swallow. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I kind of, I wonder... I look at all of my neighbors here in Brussels who are enthusiastic about taking in Ukrainian families. And one part of my brain's asking, okay, how many Afghan, how many Syrian families did they sign up to take? I mean, I do think some of it is racism. Some of it is about race, you know, kind of that very subconscious, oh, the, you know, these people are more like me. But I wonder how much of it is also gender, because uh, the Ukrainian policy that prohibits most men from leaving the country means that these are mainly women and children and some elderly folks. And I wonder if that makes people more sympathetic to this particular set of refugees and differently sympathetic, right, more protective of them. But I don't know that that's quite right. I just sort of look at it and ponder. Yeah, I think that could be part of it as well, a wave of migration that's slightly less threatening. I think the proof of the pudding is going to be in six months, 12 months time, what's the response going to be to the refugees that have, if they're not able to get back home quickly, which seems increasingly likely, how welcome are Europeans going to continue to be? That's my question. And that's something we'll just have to wait and see, I think. No, and I think it's a great question, especially with so many people staying in folks' private homes and in their guest bedrooms, right? How long are people going to be willing to put up families in their homes? How, how capable are the families going to be of continuing to live like that? I think that's something we're going to watch evolve, right? So much of this response is based on the assumption that it's a very short displacement, but displacements are very rarely very short. That's true. I mean, how long have the Syrian refugees in Turkey and uh, Libya been displaced? You know, we've got Somalis that have been in camps in Kenya for decades. This is potentially a long-term situation. And as we say, it will be interesting to see how the patience of European citizens and European governments lasts. I hope it will. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and Elissa and I are talking about the global implications and ramifications of the war in Ukraine. So we've been talking about indigenous factors, the frustration with Western hypocrisy, the nostalgia or the kind of lingering gratitude to the Soviet Union, which somehow spills over onto Russia rather than Ukraine. They could be grateful to the Ukrainians as well. But there is also, there is a great deal of 
information and disinformation flowing around the world. And one of the things that I was struck by when we did our poll of our colleagues is that some people responded with, you know, actually, this war isn't in the front pages. We're too busy thinking about domestic politics. And then others that reported that this war is in the front pages, but it's the Russian take on the war, right? It's about Nazis and so forth. And you know, how do you look at that and understand it? I mean, one of the things I've read is that Russian propaganda is being aimed at the rest of the world internally within Russia to Russians, but also to the global south and the global east rather than the west, because why even bother with the west? So what's your take on kind of uh, thinking through this and also kind of with your experience um, living in Africa? Are people more susceptible, more amenable? I think the Russians have been clever in recent years and actually established channels themselves, certainly within Africa, in which to channel their propaganda. And we've seen this in Mali with Facebook campaigns, anti-French campaigns, which are thought to be sort of Russian-sponsored. We've seen similar things in Central African Republic as well. And they've invested in radio stations there, you know, which is one of the main way that people get their news and information. So they've spent time sort of building some of these networks. And so they exist and they're being used. My Twitter feed rarely gets anything that's sort of not pro-Ukraine, pro-NATO. But that's not the case in other places. Yeah, I mean, I try to mix up my Twitter feed so I get a weird combination of things. But it's always interesting to see what is parroting kind of a Russian line or for that matter, a Western line and what is trying to unpack this and its own conspiracy theories. I think there are voices out there that are trying to unpack this. It's not all black and white, as with everything. There are voices that are very much pro-Ukrainian, pro-Western, but there are also voices that are looking how this is playing out and what this will actually mean for the countries themselves. Because I think, you know, in Europe, at least, we're very much focused on the war, what's happening in Ukraine, obviously the refugees coming here, and to a certain extent, worried about the potential economic shocks that the crisis will cause. And the impact that this conflict has will have on the rest of the world is quite frightening, I think. And it's something that, as you said, we're not really speaking about. And some of the channels are doing this. They're sort of talking a little bit about what it means for South Africa, what it means for Colombia. Well, I mean, this is the thing. And aside from the hypocrisy, aside from the racism, there is also just the fact that this is a conflict where you've got the country that has the world's biggest nuclear arsenal on the one side and the other side backing Ukraine are three countries with nuclear weapons, one of which has the second largest arsenal. So the potential cataclysmic effects of this war are huge. And then, of course, the economic shockwaves, which come both from disruptions in trade with Ukraine and with Russia on the one hand, and then the effects of the sanctions that have been put on Russia on the other. Look, it's already it's exacerbated the food crisis in Yemen which was already horrible. It's worsening other wars. And I think for that reason, it's not entirely hypocrisy to pay attention to this conflict. This conflict is important because it has these broad repercussions. That's absolutely correct. And one of the things that I wanted to actually ask you about, Olya, which takes us a little bit away from our sort of global response theme, we heard at the weekend President Biden essentially calling for 
regime change. The slip of the tongue will echo and will have ramifications across the globe. The Chinese media are having a field day with it. It's going to confirm some of the positions, some of those who, in African countries, who feel that this war between NATO-backed Ukraine and Russia is about regime change. And they've seen how messy in Libya, in elsewhere, how messy regime change is. So, you know, my question is, how much of a hindrance is this loose talk about regime change to finding a solution? And how much closer is it going to bring us to a potential cataclysmic event? It's a great question. This war is about regime change in the sense that it was Russia's attempt to change the government in Ukraine, which has failed miserably. It was completely not what they expected. And that speaks to the difficulties of a regime change, that it's easy to say, I don't like your government, you should change it. And it's uh, hard to make them change it, including, as Russia is learning, by force of arms. I don't think comments like that are helpful, because if you want a negotiated solution, you have to negotiate with the people in power. I do think Western governments understand that and realize that. I do think that overall the Western goal is not much as they'd love to see regime changes in Russia, much as I think the Kremlin would love to see regime change in much of the West. I think they understand that's not what's happening and what the goal needs to be is a sustainable peace that's acceptable to Ukraine. But having said that, I think there also is an appetite in Western governments and Western capitals to, if not change Russia's government, to at least make sure that Russia can never do anything like this again. And that's going to have repercussions if they push forward. It also makes it harder to get to a negotiated solution, right? If you're not going to signal that you'll lift sanctions if there's peace, if you're not going to signal there's going to be some level of normalization if there's peace, then the only thing driving Russia to peace is dead Russian soldiers, which might eventually work, but it might not. So it certainly doesn't lead to increased incentives to the Russians. And the longer this war goes, as we've written about it in Crisis Group, the longer this war goes, the greater the risk of it escalating, the greater the war drums uh, in Western countries, the greater the anger at Ukrainian suffering, the bigger the refugee flows, all the worse the commodity shocks all around the world. Uh, so I think it's the wrong signal to send. It's always difficult to calibrate your narratives under these things, right? To say that the Russians have done a horrible, horrible thing, but we have to sit down and negotiate with them. It's not a simple message. No, all wars, all conflicts have to end in in some kind of negotiation. The different sides will do it from different positions of strength, but you have to sit down at some point. What do you think the prospects are at the moment for a successful negotiation? Do you think the two sides are ready to talk? No. I mean, I have seen nothing that suggests that there's enough overlap between their positions. Ukraine, I think, quite rationally would like to see a real reversal in Russian military activities. They'd like to see the Russian forces leave before or be leaving before they agree to anything. And the Russians have been saying things they said at the end of last week, that really this is a war that's just about uh, liberating Donbass, the portion of eastern Ukraine that Moscow recognized as independent just before they began their onslaught. But they've changed nothing about their actual military positions, postures, or activities. 
And Ukraine, for its part, is saying, yes, we'll certainly consider variations on the theme of neutrality, which is not a tough thing for Ukraine to offer, given that it had neutrality of a sort. It had non-pact status in its constitution up until 2014, when the now seemingly smaller war that uh, started all of this broke out began. So they say that, yes, we'd consider neutrality, but only when Russian troops leave, right? We need a plan for peace. And I think at this point, both Ukraine and Russia feel that they're attaining enough success on the battlefield that they can get more concessions from the other. One of the ways I've been thinking about, you know, the the movie The Princess Bride, there's a scene where the question is to the death and uh, Wesley, Dead Pirate Roberts, says no to the pain, right? That it's not a battle to the death, it's a battle to the pain. It's how much pain can you endure? And I think this is exactly right. It's they're trying to put on more and more and more pain, though the Ukrainians will say that in their case, it is a battle to the death because the Russians want to destroy them. At this point, I think Moscow has realized that it's not going to be able to destroy Ukraine. It's not going to be able to occupy Ukraine. So it is very much a fight to the pain to try to inflict enough that the other backs down. And until they start making progress on that, I don't think we're going to get real negotiations. So, you know, kind of back to this question of global involvement, there is no shortage of international leaders who want to be part of mediating this process. I mean, everybody's volunteering. Yeah, we're definitely not short of volunteers. Israel, Turkey, be interesting to hear from you whether those are actual viable mediators. Look, I think once they're ready to deal, to some extent they can make their deal themselves. But what other countries can offer are formats and fora, you know, so that you don't have to meet in your adversary's country. And in some cases, they can offer incentives, right? If we're talking about easing of sanctions, that's something the West has to offer. So that puts Western countries, the EU, the United States, at the negotiating table virtually, if not physically. If we're talking about some kind of a deal where you have monitoring of what weapons anyone can deploy at the border, which is one of the things that it might be useful to have, then you'd have countries, presumably, who would volunteer to assist with that monitoring. And that could be Turkey. So I think that these countries do play roles. And of course, they also play the role in the meantime of uh, just passing messages back and forth. And that's also valuable, even if for the time being, the messages are that there's not enough overlap, at least it signals a willingness to keep the conversation going. One thing I wanted to pick up on, aside from your reference to the Princess Bride, which I think shows just um, probably how tu- how in tune we are, Olya, um, <laughs> is that you know this question about Ukraine and what it's suffering. I mean, for me, I think the story that that Ukraine needs to tell, and particularly, I think this story is is coming out very strongly and very clearly in the global north. But the story that it needs to tell to the global south is the pain that is it is suffering the fact that you know this is an invasion of its sovereign territory that this does impinge and well not just impinge but is a complete violation of its territorial integrity and it somehow needs to be telling that story better because i think at the moment russia has got the upper hand in the global south at least and particularly if we're going to see the General Assembly potentially weighing on this again, then maintaining that support that it's got and 
potentially growing that support is going to require it showing the pain that it's going through and what it's fighting for. Can it do that, though, in the global south? I mean, this is the thing, because in the global south, where country sovereignty is impinged upon quite frequently by great powers, in the global south, where people suffer from wars, from famines consistently, is seeing a lot of nicely dressed white people cowering in subways because of bombs. I mean, does that really resonate or does it just make people think nobody cared when it was me? Nobody cared when it was my sister. Nobody cared when it was my elderly parents. Why should I care when it's them? I think if it's the Ukrainians telling their own story, I think what has annoyed many in the global south, particularly the Western media portrayals, but also other Western governments, if Ukraine can appeal to countries and talk about the threat to particularly this question of territorial integrity. For Africa, at least, it's controversial tenet, but it's a clear tenet of African independence. There was a decision taken in the early 60s when most of the African countries got their independence that they would keep the colonial borders because the borders were drawn haphazardly. They didn't take any notice of where different ethnic groups, where different nationalities, where different ethnicities lived. So you have countries where a single people is split across a series of countries. And to prevent terrible wars in Africa, it was essential. And I think to appealing particularly to that issue is going to be important for the Ukrainians if they're going to continue to maintain the support that they have and grow it. I think that's fascinating. I also think kind of this question of the colonial history is something that they can resonate, right, with other victims of colonialism. I think it's a weird concept for a lot of people in the global south to think of colonialism in Europe, but it is true. And I think if the Ukrainians can tell that story, then they may also get a bit more resonance. Yeah, and I think some of the reasons why we're seeing such strong response, particularly in those countries that formerly part of the Soviet Union, this fear of imperialism. They don't want to go back to the bad old days when they were part of an imperialist um, Soviet sphere. Well, we are out of time, but this was great. And I am looking forward to continuing this conversation, which I think is going to keep giving for a long time to come, but also uh, taking this podcast forward with you and having more conversations. Me too, Alia. And as I said, it's a Real great honour to be invited and a great pleasure to discuss this really important issue with you and hopefully to have shown a little bit what some of the global ramifications of this and how this, how the Ukraine crisis is being seen outside of Europe and the global north. Listeners, if you want to hear more from Crisis Group about the global ramifications of this crisis, please check our Ukraine page. It's been constantly updated with new material. You should also listen to recent episodes of our sister podcasts, Hold Your Fire and The Horn, for really insightful discussions on the war's impact on everything from Venezuela to the Iran nuclear deal to Russia's presence in Africa. And we didn't even talk about Venezuela and the Iran nuclear deal no. next time. Uh, <laughs> listeners, uh, if you're not already, follow Crisis Group and follow us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Elissa is at Elissa Jobson. And I'm at Olya Olaker. Also, check us out on Facebook and Instagram, where Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Also, please do tweet at us with any suggestions you have for the podcast. We'll be looking out for them. You can email us at podcasts 
at crisisgroup.org. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review as well. And War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. Uh, you can check out a few of the others. And in closing, I want to give a shout out to one podcast uh, in particular, The Mediator Studio, which uh, is hosted by Adam Cooper. Adam was our guest on War and Peace last season, and he's doing a terrific series uh, back for season three on talking to diplomats and talking about some of the world's most sensitive peace negotiations. This season, he's talking to veteran diplomat uh, Lakhdar Brahimi about lessons from Afghanistan, activist Muna Lukman on the reality of war in Yemen. I think it's uh, going to really be some incredibly interesting conversations. It sounds like really good listening. And I'd like to thank Stiftung Mercator for their generous support in producing this episode. And also a massive thanks to producer Bull Media and to our coordinator, Finn Dunbar-Johnson, without whom we couldn't do this. But the biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. We're looking forward to chatting with you again very soon. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.